Well, good morning. Is everybody enjoying the new weather? Oh, yeah. I'll have something to say about that in a little bit here. But uh, uh, before we get started, one of the things that I hadn't planned to say this, but one of the things that I feel a need to say based on some stuff that's, uh, that's been circulating, I suppose, um, uh, the, the last little bit, um, you, you've probably noticed that we're doing things a little differently. Chad mentioned it a few weeks ago when he spoke. We're doing things a little differently, and, and that's partly in response to the fact that my travel schedule will be, will be picking up uh, beginning uh, after Easter, and uh, I'll be in and out and, and back and forth. But it's also partly in response to uh, well, just something that became really obvious to us as we were going along, that we had resources here in our church that we weren't taking advantage of. And um, I, I think it... Uh, it it's been a, a benefit to folks to just be able to have those resources uh, put to good use. But this does not mean, and to answer your question, because I know this question has been circulating, as far as I know at this point right now, apart from God's intervention by taking my life, Jay is not going anywhere. That's not the, this is not our effort to kind of shoehorn somebody else in and, you know, pull me out. We're... Still going to be putting our shoes on one at a time and tying the laces and all of that. We're not, not, I have no intention of going anywhere, and uh, you can talk to my wife for that reassurance because uh, she's not going anywhere, so that means I'm not going anywhere. We will explain you know, later as we get into the structure of the church because First Timothy is going to take us there. We will be explaining what it is that we're trying to do these days in an effort to, to make sure that we all have the spiritual resources that we need to be available to us as time goes on. One other thing I want to say, there's a vision trip, a missions vision trip coming up June 20 to July 2nd, and a construction trip coming up July 25 to August 8. Uh, if you're interested in either one of those, would you meet me up here? I'll try to remind you again at the end uh, when I'm done. If I forget to do that, somebody shout it out. But would you meet me up here? And if you met me up here last week, please come up here again so that we can, uh, we're, we're about three months behind in actually planning this trip. And so we've got to accelerate things just a little bit. And, and I hope that you'll bear with us as we're going. And having said that, I've only got a certain number of minutes here. So let's get started. This morning, we're going to be continuing our studies in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. And this is part 11 and entitled, Assuming Authority in the Church. And we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, if you're taking notes. Last week, Brian walked us through verses 8 to 10 of chapter 2, and where Paul told us, uh, Timothy and, and us by extension, how we should pray. And you may remember the emphasis that Brian put on context. You remember context, context, context were the, the first three most important things. I had a old teacher in Bible college that used to say, context with a capital K. And, you know, we would sit back and say, wait a minute, that's not, oh, I see what you're doing there. You know, context is vitally important. And how very important context is in helping us to understand what God's word means. But the need for context is something that is not unique to God's word. Uh, so it may help you to think of it in other terms. For example, you know that it was really cold back in January and February and, and Friday. Um, but back in January and February, and it, it's recently begun to warm up, and that's something for which most of us are thankful. You just said so. 
Well, we have a digital indicator in our house that records and displays both the inside and the outside temperature. Maybe you have one of those, uh, and, and it's ne they're next to each other. And summer or winter, I'm always pleased to see how different the inside temperature is from the outside temperature. But we have a Jeep that we use to get around from place to place, and it's always parked outside, so as you can imagine, there's not often a, a very much of a difference between the, the, the temperature of the Jeep when we get in it and the, and the outside temperature. Uh, there's a digital indicator in our Jeep, though, and, and you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear me say that from time to time, back in the cold winter months, that digital indicator read zero. And recently, it's been reading 40 or 50 or 60 and, and even more, and I expect as the summer months come around, it'll read even higher. But what I find intriguing is what happens with those numbers when Faith and I take a trip in the Jeep. They may start at zero, but by the time we get where we're going, the number may read 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or even more. But what's really amazing is that I've seen that number move from zero all the way up to 65 between the time we leave our home in Lynn Creek and when we arrive here at church. And having heard me say that, you're probably now either very confused or very suspicious. So now I need to point out that the digital indicator in our Jeep that I'm talking about is not the thermometer. I'm talking about the speedometer. That's what I'm talking about. And leaving Lynn Creek and coming here, yeah, it generally goes from zero to 65. And sometimes if I'm a little late for church, it may go a little higher than that on that little stretch out there. And I'm just saying that if you're a police officer, stop listening. Um, you were right to be confused, though. I, those of you who, who chuckled just kind of briefly there and led on to the fact. I, I started that illustration by talking about the thermometer in our house, where the temperature is displayed digitally. But then without providing you additional context, I switched to talking about the speedometer in the Jeep, where the speed is displayed digitally. And as I say that, I'm hoping to illustrate for you how important context is especially when you're trying to sort out what God's word means. Now, when it comes to interpreting God's word, the basic rule of thumb is quite simple. God's word means what it says. God's word means what it says. You can say that to yourself every time you read God's word. God's word means what it says. And here's something that you'll never hear me say from this pulpit or anywhere else. You'll never hear me say, this is what God's word says, but this is what it really means. I'm not going to attach a different meaning. I'm going to tell you what God's word says and then help you to understand what God's word says means to us. You're not going to hear Brian from the pulpit up here say that. This is what God's word says, but what it really means. You're not going to hear any of the elders in, in either in public or in private conversation. That's just not going to happen. We won't say that God's word means something other than what it says. That is my promise to you. And you hold me to that. If I ever, if I ever tell you anything different, you come after me later, and I, I'll be glad to have that conversation with you. So the basic principle is that God's word means what it says, which means that the job of the teacher is first to understand and then to explain and illustrate what God's word means by first taking the time to figure out what, God's, what the particular passage says. And I can tell you someone who's been teaching for God's word now for more than 50 years that context is the single most important tool you can use to help you understand what God's word means.
For example, you're trying to figure out what, what the author is saying and what the author means in verse 7 of a particular passage. And you notice that in verse 6, the author is talking about puppies. And then you notice that in verse 8, the author is still talking about puppies. Then I can promise you that verse 7 is not about giraffes. It's not about giraffes. That's not how God's word works. Verse 7 is likely talking about the same thing that verse 6 and verse 8 are talking about. The context helps you to understand and explain both where the author is coming from and where the author is going. And so that's how you have to treat that particular passage that you're working on. But what does that have to do with 1 Timothy chapter 2? Well, remember that Brian reminded us last week that chapter 2 of Paul's first letter to Timothy has been talking primarily about prayer. That's what Paul has been talking about. He's been remi Paul, Brian reminded us that verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2 tell us what we should pray for. And Paul clearly tells us there that we should pray for all people, especially those who are kings or those who are in authority. And, and when we pray for other people, we should pray that God will save them. In other words, we, would pray that we should pray that God would make it possible for them to hear, understand, and believe the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So verses 1 to 4 tell us that we should pray for all people by asking God to save them. And then verses 5 to 7 tell us why we should pray that all people will be saved. We should pray that all people would hear, understand, and believe the good news about, about Jesus because there is no other way to escape God's judgment. There is only one God, and there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's what Paul told us. Jesus gave himself as the ransom for all people, and our job is to both tell other people the good news and pray that they will hear it, understand it, and believe it. And then Brian taught us verses 8 to 10 last week and pointed out that Paul was telling Timothy how we should pray. Paul told Timothy that we should pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And Brian actually singled out men in particular. I, I, I heard that. He singled out men in particular because Paul singles out men in particular. He singled out men in particular and said that men should lift up holy hands when they pray. And again, you know, this is not literal. We don't have to stand around like this whenever we pray. We could start that tradition, but I'm, I'm afraid most of you wouldn't appreciate it. But he explained that our hands are representative of what we do. They represent our lifestyle. Our hands represent the exterior of our lives, and as Brian pointed out, our lives and actions should not be a facade. Mark Hall wrote a song entitled Life Song, and you may be familiar with it. The lyrics say, empty hands held high, such small sacrifice. And if not joined with my life, I worship in vain tonight. So may the words I say and the things I do make my life song sing. Bring a smile to you. Lord, let my life song sing to you. That's what happens when hands and heart are in the same room. That's what Paul means when he says that he wants everywhere to, men everywhere to lift up holy hands. And that's also why Paul said that when a woman comes to worship, she should display her beauty. Because that's part of the glory that God has given us here in this church, the beautiful women that attend. But her beauty should not be displayed 
with immodest clothing, elaborate hairstyles, or expensive clothing and jewelry. Instead, a woman should display her beauty, her true beauty, by doing good things. This is what Paul said. Things that are appropriate for a woman who claims to be a worshiper of God. In other words, in the case of both men and women, as Brian put it, our outward appearance should not be in conflict with our inner reality. When our lives don't resonate with our worship, when our lives don't back up our prayers, our prayers and our worship both become lies. Our prayers can make us look holy when in fact the opposite is true. Our worship can make it look as though we're wholly devoted to God when in fact the opposite is true. And as Brian reminded us last week, if your life doesn't back up your prayers, then don't stop praying I mean, that would be one takeaway from the message last week. Well, I'll just, I'll just stop praying. No, that's, a, that's not what you meant, right? That's not what he's telling me. That's not what he meant. If, you're, if your life doesn't back up your prayers, then don't stop praying. Instead, start living a life that's in line with your prayers. Or as Brian put it, and I, this was my favorite challenge from last week, be an onion. Just be an onion because no matter how many layers you peel off the onion, an onion is an onion all the way through to the core. You don't discover an egg inside the onion when you peel down inside there. And, and that's the kind of people we ought to be, no matter how many layers you peel off. The man who stands here praying ought to be exactly the same all the way through to the core. So let's stop praying so that other people will think, will think that we're holy. Instead, let's be holy through and through so that our prayers and our lives are completely aligned. Let's be fully focused on what's good so that our worship and our works are fully aligned. That's the context of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And in that light, I want to remind you that in the context for this morning, Paul has been talking to Timothy and to us about worship and prayer. That's the context. And Paul has been telling us that our behavior, our actions, our attitudes, our words, uh, the way we live, they should all line up with what we claim to believe. The outside should never mask what's inside. Instead, the outside should reveal what's inside. Besides that, Paul has already made a distinction between men and women. Did you catch that last week? He talked to the men about holy hands. He talked to the women about the way they dress and the way they look, when, the way they display their beauty when they come to worship. He's made a distinction between how what's on the outside of a man should reveal what's within the man and how what's on the outside of a woman should reveal what's within a woman. And you may have noticed that Paul gave different advice to men than he did to women, which may mean, <laughs> which may mean that Paul is a chauvinist. It, it, it may mean that. Or, or and I'm just going to float this one out there, it may mean that Paul has tapped into the schematics, you know, the, the original design that God stamped on the original man and the original woman. But I think either way, that's what we need to have a conversation about this morning. And to start that conversation, um, we always read the passage that we'll be unpacking. So if you would stand with me uh, as we read aloud together from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, 
and holiness with propriety. Thanks. You can, you can take your seats. <clears throat> Confident that God blesses us with his truth whenever we read his word. I want to say that as loudly as I can this morning before you ladies start throwing anything at me. Before I say anything else, I need to remind you that when we started 1 Timothy, I, I told you that there would be times when you would need to buckle your seatbelts because it was going to be a bumpy ride. And having said, having read the passage there for this morning, uh, let me just say, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. Well, we'd like to, we've been informed by other airlines, other airplanes that have gone before us to... Uh, that they, uh, we, uh, there's some turbulence ahead. So if you would, just buckle your seatbelts, return to your seats, buckle your seatbelts, and, uh, and, uh, and remember that we only have your safety in mind. <laughs> that last part was a lie. It's not your safety I'm worried about this morning. It's mine. Hide me behind the pulpit, God. Um, I'm not worried about yours. Anyway, I'm just, I'm just saying, considering the task I've been given today, and if you don't like what I have to say, you can talk to the elders because they're the ones that told me that I had to do this. I would have just skipped over this passage, you know. Except we can't do that because we teach expositionally here. And, well, that's what God has to say for us this week. Truth is, I'm not really afraid of this passage. Because I believe that this is a truly beautiful and empowering passage that will give us a glimpse into the heart of God. And the beauty of his intention, his design for men and women as we walk together through a very dangerous, fallen, and broken world. And my prayer is that I'll be able to adequately communicate that power and beauty to you in the few minutes that I have this morning. Now you've probably already figured out which story from God's word I'm gonna tell you given what we just read, but, but in that regard I just have to say that there are times when, when I struggle to sort out what story to tell. I, I do that because I try, I try to choose a story that will illustrate the truth that we're gonna be looking at, the, the truth that the passage communicates. And I found over the years that there is always a story that gets that done, but sometimes that story can be difficult to find given the number of stories there are in God's word. But then there are those moments when the author chooses the story that best communicates the core truth of the passage that we're studying. And happily, this is one of those mornings. Last time I told you a story, I told you the story of the fourth day of creation. And the off-handed way that Genesis chapter, two, uh, chapter 1 says, he made the stars also. I just, I just love that idea of the greatness of God. And then we looked at the story of creation from the perspective of the seventh day when God created Adam and God invited Adam and Eve to sit back with him and enjoy creation. As the one who created all the animals sat back with the one who had named all the animals and just enjoyed all the animals. He watched them move and it was good for both Adam and Eve. And I have to say this morning that, that human beings were never more complete than Adam and Eve were in the presence of their creator that day. Never. And then something happened in the next chapter of Genesis that changed all that. And with that background, this is the story from God's word from Genesis chapter 3. In the garden that God had planted there in the eastern part of the region called Eden, there was a variety of animals that God had created. Of course, God had given Adam the privilege of naming all the animals, and Adam called one of the animals the serpent. And we're not at all sure what the serpent looked like because by the end of chapter 3, he's going to undergo a massive 
uh, makeover, and he's going to start crawling on his belly, but he didn't start out that way. What we do know about the serpent was that it was smart. Smart to the point of actually being crafty. The fallen angel Lucifer took the form of one of those serpents and began a conversation with Eve while Adam was standing nearby. The serpent said to the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat any of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Eve responded to the serpent by saying, we may eat the fruit from the trees that are in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the center of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, and then added, I say that because God knows that when you eat the fruit from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman took a long look at the tree and saw that the tree itself was a beautiful tree. She saw that it, it looked like the fruit would taste good. She also noticed that, there was a, that the tree was desirable because of the wisdom that came from eating its fruit. So she picked a piece of the fruit from the tree and she ate it. And since Adam was standing next to her while all this was happening, she picked another piece of fruit from the tree and handed it to him. And he ate a piece of the fruit as well. Immediately, their eyes were open because they'd gained the wisdom that the serpent had promised and all of the amazing insight they gained from their new wisdom combined together and they suddenly realized that they were naked. So they sewed some large fig leaves together to make coverings for themselves and began to look for a place where they could hide when God showed up in the garden. And that's the story from God's word. Now, there's something that happens in this story that I want us to notice right out of the gate. It happens at the moment when Eve looks at the tree and notices three things. The three things that she noticed were, if you recall, it was a beautiful tree, looked like the fruit would taste good, and according to Eve, it was also a tree that was desirable for gaining wisdom. That's, that's, what, that's how Eve evaluated that tree. With that in mind, Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 through 9 about all of the trees in the garden. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, what was it that I told you that Eve noticed about the tree? Keep looking up there. No, Eve noticed that it was a beautiful tree, right? But look at what chapter 2 says about all the trees. They were all pleasing to the eye. What else did Eve notice as she looked at the tree? It looked like the fruit would taste good, right? And look at what chapter 2 says about all the trees. Trees that were good for food. And what else did Eve notice when she looked at the tree? It was a tree that was desirable for gaining wisdom, right? Does chapter 2 say that? No, chapter 2 doesn't say that at all. Chapter 2 doesn't, doesn't say that about all the trees. In fact, chapter 2 doesn't say that any of the trees would give you wisdom if you ate from them. Chapter 2 doesn't say that any of the trees would give someone wisdom. But chapter 2 does have something to say about what would happen to them if they ate the fruit from that tree. That comes from verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, 
But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So what are we looking at here? Well, God had said in chapter 2 that if they ate the fruit that came from that tree, they would certainly die. But the serpent came along in chapter 3 and said if they ate the fruit from that tree, they would become wise. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows when you eat the fruit from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So God's opinion of what would happen if they ate the fruit from that tree was quite different from Satan's opinion of what would happen if they ate the fruit that came from that tree. So let's take a quick straw poll, and I know you don't like to raise your hand, but I'd, I'd really like you to get involved here. Promise you this is not a trick question. I'd just like to know, how many of you think that Satan was right about the tree and God was wrong? Just a quick show of hands here. All right, see, you, I'm hoping you're going to be more comfortable with this next one. How many of you think God was right and Satan was wrong about... Look at that. See, you, you guys don't you actually need me to sort this stuff out for you. you. You picked up on that, like, right away. You're smart enough to know that since God designed that tree, God was the one who was best equipped to know what would happen if they ate the fruit that came from that tree, Right? So keeping in mind that God said they'd die if they ate the fruit, and Satan said that they would gain wisdom if they ate the fruit, let's look one more time at what Eve noticed about the tree when she looked at it. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Wait, wait a minute. Where did Eve get the idea that that tree was a tree that was desirable for gaining wisdom? How did she happen to notice that? She knew that by looking at the fruit, right? She, she believed that about the fruit. Well, if you're still tracking with me, you already know the answer to that question. Eve got that idea from Satan. And she held on to that idea because she chose to believe Satan who had lied to her instead of believing God who had told her the truth. God had not only had designed that tree, it had also designed the man and the woman. And I just think that it's terribly sad, tragic even, that, that the man and the woman decided to believe what Satan said instead of taking God at his word. So at this point, we know that God had an opinion and Satan had a different opinion about what they should do with the fruit that came from that tree. And since we don't ever hear the story that doesn't get told, we don't really know what would have happened if they had decided to take God at his word instead of deciding to trust Satan. We don't know what would have happened if they had trusted and obeyed God instead of trusting and obeying Satan. You do know that they didn't become wise like Satan said they would, and instead they were separated from God like a branch cut from a tree, and death instantly began its insidious work as the life drained from them until they were lying in their graves. And all that happened because instead of taking God at his word, they chose to believe someone else. God designed them, and yet they refused to believe what God had to say. Several years ago, I was sitting at the dining room table in a mission guest house and having a conversation with a man who had an Australian accent. He had started the conversation when he noticed my 1969 Toyota Land Cruiser 
parked outside of the guest house there in the parking lot. And for those of you who may not know, the 1969 Toyota Land Cruiser was shaped kind of like two very large square bread boxes that were welded together. If you tried to drive it empty, it was like driving a pogo stick because you would bounce it. But you put a thousand pounds in it and it would literally climb a tree. I mean, it was an amazing vehicle. I told him that I really liked it, but added that I'd had some trouble recently with it overheating. And so I had just taken out the thermostat because, you know, we lived in a tropical country and, and I, we didn't, I never needed heat. So, so let's, you know, it, it was running fine since then. He looked at me and he said, uh, it's a diesel, isn't it? And I said, yeah. And he said, you need to put the thermostat back in it. I didn't roll my eyes. I'm so proud of that now. I didn't roll my eyes, but I wondered who this guy thought he was telling me how I should take care of my 1969 Toyota Land Cruiser. Didn't make any sense to me. We got off the subject of the Toyota Land Cruiser, and we started talking about other things. And, and a few minutes later, I asked him what he did for a living. He quickly said, oh, I'm the head of maintenance for Toyota Australia. Not, oh, I work on cars, but I am the head of maintenance for Toyota Australia. The whole country. He's in charge of maintenance. And as you can guess, that's when I said, um, tell me about that thermostat thing again. Because <laughs> I knew. I knew I was talking to someone who was much more intimately connected to the designer than I was. I knew his information had to be better because of his position, because of his role, because of his connection to Toyota. And so he became the guy that, my go-to guy at that moment, to tell me what was best for my Land Cruiser. When it came to that thermostat, I didn't want to make the, the mistake that Eve had made. Let's just turn a Bible thing on this, okay? As we've already said, God designed them. God designed Adam and Eve. And yet they refused to believe what God had to say about the fruit that came from that tree. They refused to believe what God had to say about what was best for them. And they chose instead to fall in line with someone who is committed to opposing God and God's design. God told them the truth and they chose to believe the lie instead. And with those distinctions in mind, I want you to look at what is possibly the most politically incorrect idea anywhere in the New Testament. And it falls to me to talk about this. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. There. I said it. Well, I actually read it. Uh, and, and I don't mean that as an escape clause. But, but I do want to remind you that I read it from... God's word. Now, before you go in, we go any further, I, I want to be clear. Paul is not saying that, that a woman can't be ahead of the school board. He's not saying that she can't be a CEO or president of the United States. He's not saying any of that. He's talking here about spiritual matters. He's talking about the church that Jesus said he would build. Paul is talking about the church that Jesus said would march right up to the gates of Hades. But neither the darkness nor the hell itself would ever overcome the church. That was Jesus' opinion of the church that he would build. In other words, Jesus designed the church to do battle with the very enemy that defeated human beings way back there in the Garden of Eden. That was his intention for the church. Now let's hold those two ideas in parallel. Back there in the Garden... 
the one who designed human beings, told them that that tree would kill them. Eating the fruit from that tree would kill them. But there was another idea floating around out there that said that the tree would give them wisdom. And in the end, Adam and Eve decided to disregard God and embrace an idea that was the opposite of what God had said. And now all these years later, we're standing here in the 21st century, and we've just heard God's opinion of how leadership should be done in the church, and I don't know about you, but as a man of the 21st century, every politically attuned muscle in my body recoils at the idea that men should lead in the church. You can't, I'm saying things right now that if I were to stand down at the square and say them loud enough for people to hear, I would be in even worse jeopardy than I probably am right now. But why do I recoil at that idea? Because there's an, an opposing idea floating around out there. And, and just like Adam and Eve stood at the foot of that tree and had to decide whether they were going to trust God and what he had to say or trust that other idea that had come their way, so we too are forced to stand at the door of our church and decide whether we're going to trust what God had to say about leadership in the church or that other idea that's floating around us. And that idea that I'm alluding to right now is that men and women should be the same. That's the basic core of the idea that I'm alluding to. Men and women should be the same. Society is telling us these days that, that for too long now, society has been rewarding men and robbing women. And the basic undercurrent of that idea is that the only way to fix that problem is for men and women to be the same. In other words, society is now telling us that there's a clear divide between men and women, and the only way to fix that is for men to be reshaped so that they're more like women, and women to be reshaped so that they're more like men. And that's because the only way to truly blur the gender lines is to redesign the genders. That's how you blur the lines. You redesign the genders. Society wants to redesign men so that they can become more like women and redesign women so that they can be more like men. In other words, society is telling us that men and women are different right now because they have been molded or shaped by society to be different. And the only way to fix that is to reshape both men and women so that they can be the same. Let me say that again. Society is telling us that men and women are different and the only way to fix that is to reshape men and women so that they are the same. Which has a logical ring to it, but in response to that, I'd like for us to look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. So God formed Adam first, and then he formed Eve. Hey, do we have any sense this morning that God was haphazard as he formed Adam and Eve? Was God arbitrary? Was he indiscriminate or was he disorganized as he formed Adam and Eve? Or did God have a plan when he formed Adam and Eve? In other words, is it possible that God designed Adam to fulfill the plan that he had for Adam? And while we're being wild and crazy and bold, let me just hang myself with a politically incorrect noose. Is it possible that God designed Eve to fulfill the plan that he had for Eve? Is any of that possible? Well, Genesis 2.15 says... The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. God's plan for Adam was that Adam would work the garden and take care of it. That he would till the garden and protect it. Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said, 
It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God's plan for Eve was that she would fully engage with Adam and fully participate with Adam in everything that needed to be done there in the garden. You know, I had the privilege just last night of performing, a, officiating a wedding, and every time I officiate a wedding, I quote something that I, I first heard when I was just a child. Woman was not created from a part of man's head to lord it over him, nor was she created from a part of his feet to be trampled upon. She was created from his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved. And I have to say it, I think God's design is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Keep in mind that God's not talking about authority here. He's talking about responsibility. He's not saying that Adam's value is greater than, than Eve's. He's saying that Adam's role is different from Eve's role. God personally and intentionally designed Adam to fulfill the role that God had planned for him. And God personally and intentionally designed Eve to fulfill the role that God had planned for her. And my takeaway from this is, is it is the responsibility uh, the responsibility for taking care of the garden, the responsibility for protecting the garden lay squarely on Adam's shoulders while Eve took her stand right beside him and fully participated with him as each of them assumed the role and fulfilled the plan that God had given them. This is part of God's design for a man and woman. It's part of the way we're wired. You know, when, when Faith and I are in, out in our neighborhood on a walk from time to time, we find ourselves accosted by a big, mean dog. And, you know, I can harumph all I want. The dogs in, in, in Camden County are supposed to be on a leash, but the dog doesn't seem to understand that he should leave us alone on that basis. But, but we're, this dog, is, he's barking and he's snarling, and we both begin to believe that this is not a friendly dog and maybe things are going to take a turn for a wor the worse. Now, whenever that happens, Faith always turns to me and says, I'll hold him off, you run for help. That's, that's not... I can run faster than she can. But that is never the way it works out. In fact, she will get behind me when the dog is. And if she doesn't, you know what I do? Get behind me. Get here behind me. That's not how it goes down. It, she never. In fact, if there's a bad dog coming after us, I put myself between that dog and her to show that if he's going to get to my wife, he's going to have to go through me first. That's what I do whenever I find my family in danger. I put myself squarely between the danger and them. And if that danger is going to get to them, it has to go through me first. Women and children first. It's how I'm wired. And I'm telling you, anybody walks up to me and tells me that I could be liberated from that, this papa don't want to be liberated from that. I long for the privilege of protecting my family. It, I'm wired that way to the very core. And I get, I, I love the idea that my wife is okay with that. She's okay with me stepping into danger if it means that it's not going to get to her. And it's not because I'm especially brave. It's because of how I'm wired. It's because of how God designed me. Times like that, my, my wife and I are equal in the danger we're facing, but we're not the same in the way we face it. Again, we're not talking about authority here. I have no authority over that dog. It's, this is clear at this point. We're not talking about authority. We're talking about responsibility. 
And it was Adam's responsibility to protect the garden and his wife while Eve stood by his side and fully supported him as his equal. And I'll tell you what else I believe. I believe that Satan understood the design. I believe that Satan understood that it was Adam's responsibility to protect Eve while Eve stood by his side fully supporting him. And in light of that, I don't think it's a coincidence at all that when Satan wanted to defeat and destroy humankind, he didn't attack Adam while Eve stood by Adam's side. He attacked Eve while Adam stood by her side. And something that's even more tragic, Adam saw his wife come under attack. Adam knew that Satan was lying to Eve. Adam knew that Satan had deceived Eve to the point where she was considering obeying God, disobeying God. Adam knew and understood all of that, and he did and said nothing to protect his wife from her mortal enemy who was trying to destroy her. Adam knew that Satan was lying to Eve. Adam knew that Satan was deceiving Eve, and he did nothing to protect her. How do I know that Adam saw through Satan's deception? Because of what it says in verse 14. And Adam was not the one deceived. He knew what was going down. He knew the danger his sweet wife was in. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Eve sinned because she was deceived. And Adam saw all that going down and did nothing. So what does all this mean? It means that Adam didn't do what God designed him to do. And the greatest tragedy ever to befall the human race all went down on Adam's watch. Adam and Eve were equally wrong. But they were equally wrong for different reasons. Adam was wrong because he set aside the role for which he was designed and forced his wife to protect the garden from their mortal enemy. Eve was wrong because she set aside the role for which she was designed and was deceived to the point of making a decision that she never should have had to make. So what does all of this mean in the 21st century? Well, Paul gives us a sort of cryptic answer to that question when he adds verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So, so let me get this straight. Eve sinned because she was deceived, but the women who descended from Eve will be saved by giving birth to children. Well, there we go. That clears it right up. And uh, do you want to just stand? No, no, we're not, we're not, we're not going to do that. That doesn't really seem like it clears it up, but it really does. I can, I can show you at least 20 different interpretations to this saved by, we're not talking about being saved from hell here. We're talking about being saved from deception. Um, where I can give you, I can show you at least 20 different ideas about Paul, what Paul meant when he said that. Bible scholars don't agree with that, and I'm not going to dance with that this morning because uh, well, I, I'm not going to pretend that I've got this figured out when a whole bunch of Bible scholars don't. But in an effort to put this into perspective, I want to share with you one of the things that has made Faiths in my marriage a success. I made a deal with her when we were first married that she would be the one to wear high heels and she would be the one to bear all the children. That was the deal that, 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 we, that I made with her. And that, that has worked for us. I can tell you that in, in more than 45 years of marriage, I, I have never worn a pair of high heels and I have never given birth to a child. I, I mean, I just... I just think that's really cool. And I know that's a truly silly way to explain a Bible verse and ask you to forgive me for that, but it may be more to the point than you realize. I've never born a child, but I was there. 
I was there three times while my sweet wife spent nine long months making a human being and then a whole bunch of hours giving life to the three most precious gifts one person, anybody has ever given to me. And having done that Herculean task, she continued in faith and love and holiness with propriety as those newborn infants grew into adults who are today serving God half a world away from here. All that to say that in the process of childbearing, men and women are equal. I, I don't want to have to explain how that, what I mean by that from the pulpit. Men and women are equal in when it comes to having a child, but they are definitely not the same. Men and women are equals in childbearing, but their roles are completely different. And that didn't change as our children grew. Faith and I were equal in our approach to the children, but our roles were different. Faith and I were equal, but we were not the same. And all of that has led me to believe that the home and the family works best when the husband is remarkably a man and the wife is remarkably a woman. And the same thing is true of the church. The church works best when the men in the church are remarkably men and the women in the church are remarkably women. And I know that what I just said opens me up to a charge of being politically incorrect because it's, it's just not wise to appear to undermine the, the things that society believes to be important these days. But I want to remind you of the story that Paul reminded us of right here in this context. Adam and Eve stood at the base of that tree and, and they were faced with making the decision whether God's opinion of that fruit was, was the right thing to, to believe or the enemy's opinion of the fruit was the right thing to believe. In the same way we stand at the door of our church, faced with making the decision that either God's opinion of how the church should be run is right or society's opinion of the way the church should be run is right. So let me encourage you, as you stand between those two opposite opinions, make sure that you think it through. And don't just come back with a gut reaction in response to this terribly important question. And from the story of Adam and Eve, we... We learn another vital truth. When the garden came under attack, they both abandoned the role that God designed them to fill. They both. Please know this. If we're going to mess with God's original design, we always do that to our own peril. Instead of changing God's original design, let's flip that coin and look at the other side. What if each dad here this morning were to be remarkably man enough to draw his wife under his arm as his equal and support her in her weaknesses as they together take a stand against the onslaught of the enemy in their home. And what if each mom here this morning were to be remarkably woman enough to stand right next to her husband as his equal and lean into him and support him in his weakness as they together take their stand against the onslaught of the enemy in their home. I believe that if, that if dads and moms did that, our homes and families would be transformed in ways that we can barely even begin to imagine. And what if we were to extend that to our church so that every man in our church was remarkably man enough and every woman in our church was remarkably woman enough to be exactly what God designed them to be? I believe that if we were to choose to do that, we as a body would be able to stand against any challenge the enemy mounts against us and at the same time, we'd be able to reach out to meet every need 
that we see around us in our community and around the world. But to get there, we have to say no to what the, enemies of our, the enemy of our souls has been feeding us and yes to what God has been feeding us. If, we're all, if, we're all, if we were to all allow him to nourish us, we'd be unstoppable. But here's the deal, and I'm almost done. In order for this to become a reality in your home, both of you, both husband and wife, need to make the decision to adhere to God's original design and allow God to feed and nourish your spirits every day. And in order for this to become a reality in our church, all of us would need to make the decision to adhere to God's original design and allow God to feed and nourish our souls every day. And when we all, and when we all know that we don't ever hear the story that doesn't get told, so my prayer for your family and your home, my prayer for your marriage, my prayer for our church, is that the day would come when people would look back on the impact that we've had here on this broken world and tell the story that it all began the day the men and women agreed to stand together as different but equal and live out the design and fulfill the roles that God had for each of them. In closing, let me read this passage one more time. I pray that you'll, uh, you'll see Paul not as a chauvinist, but as someone who's immediately acquainted, intimately acquainted with the designer. I pray that you'll see the true beauty in what the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was not formed first. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Ladies, we believe in you. We really, truly do. And I hope your confidence is returned as you look at your husband, as you look at the men in the church. And I hope that together we can stand, take our stand against the enemy, and reach to meet the needs that are around us because we all understand that we've been designed to be equal but different. Would you stand with me in the presence? Father, thank you today for the, where we've just been. God, I pray that by your spirit you would, you would use your word to empower every woman in this church. You'd have to empower every man in this church and you'd help us all to understand that we never have more power than at the moment when we live out the design that you stamped on our lives. Thank you for the, the privilege of being different. Not the same, but equal. Thank you, Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. I'm about to dismiss, but... Those of you who are interested in the trip or talking about the trip can meet me up here. Faith is going to come up as well as you head out that way. Um, men, I'm challenging you to be men, okay? That's all I'm asking. <laughs> Women, I, I know I don't have any right to, but I'm just going to challenge you the same way because you are never more beautiful than when you are truly woman.